in my opinion, all memory is subjective and it cannot be trusted. You shouldn't trust my memory. I certainly do not trust my memory. Hello and welcome to episode one of Getting Better Acquainted. My name's Dave and this show is made by me. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So I thought I would just explain my reasons for this podcast, my vision for this podcast, where uh, this podcast will take you. Uh, You, the audience, will be getting every week a little bit better acquainted with me, and every week I will be getting a little bit better acquainted with somebody else. Okay, so there are interview shows where famous people interview famous people. This show is where someone who isn't famous, me, Uh, interviews non-famous people. Now acquaintances can mean many things and I hope that this series will explore all of those things. Uh, Sometimes they might be just a person I met one time at a party and sometimes they might be my closest friends and we'll have a conversation. A conversation about something. Either something that they want to talk about or something that I think would be interesting to talk about based on my knowledge of them. And through those conversations, I'll be taking you on a journey. A journey in search of truth. Of the truth. Of a truth. As many truths as uh, are possible. I think all conversations are a journey. You start in one place and you, you finish in another. Because I'm, I'm a talker and I talk all the time. But do I talk clearly? Do I express myself in the way that I would like? Do I communicate my thoughts to other people? I'm not sure. And I certainly wonder if I listen to other people properly, if I allow them enough space in the conversation. And really that's what this project will be about, learning to to give my friends and my acquaintances and my family their own space uh, in in our conversation. So today we are going to be getting acquainted with Dave. And this will be the last time that the show will focus on me for quite some time. So I've, uh, I'm making this episode a compilation of some live performances that I recorded in front of audiences. I recorded performances at Spark London events, which is true stories told live in front of an audience. Uh, you can also hear that as a podcast. So you're going to hear two of those, some readings of some personal accounts I've written up and some improvised and edited anecdotes. Hopefully this next hour of me, 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 me uh, will give you some idea of who I, I might be when I'm not in conversation. Uh, hi, my name's Dave. Um, I've done a spark before. It was a really, really unhappy story, and I thought I'd take this opportunity to tell a nice one. Um, so, <laughs> it's not going to start nice though. I hate Valentine's Day. I really hate the concept of it. It's just so commercial and unpleasant. Uh, this is the story about how I uh, accidentally managed to have my anniversary on Valentine's Day, which is another reason to hate it. You can't get a table. Um, but, so, uh, last Valentine's Day was my 10 year anniversary uh, with my girlfriend, Jen. Uh, and we met at university, and um, we met the first day of university, actually. Um, it was for the first lecture that we both had, which was in creative writing, and it was at 9.30 in the morning on a Monday. Um, and I was, I'd had a shit time at school, and uh, I wanted to reinvent myself as myself, you know. So uh, I had my hat on, which is a thing I do, and I had a newspaper, unfortunately, the Guardian newspaper, uh, I, don't, I don't read anymore, but <laughs> I had it there, nice and big and wide. And I was sitting down in front of where we were supposed to have our, s- it was a seminar, not a lecture, seminar group, and uh, reading the newspaper. 
And Jen was trying to make some contact with the other human beings around her, and she said, "So, um, uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, early in early in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> uh, something like that." And I uh, put my head up over the newspaper and said. Um, I think it's fantastic to be starting the week at 9.30 with writing. Because writing is my life. <laughs> writing is my passion. Uh, and then, whoop, back down behind the paper. <laughs> so obviously she thought I was a total twat. Uh, <laughs> some might say her first impressions were correct. But uh, anyway, so I'm, I, have, I have created writing with her for a while and uh, I sort of, get interested in her and her writing and her mind and all that stuff and her body. I'm not <laughs> some weirdo. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I went out clubbing with some people and I happened to see her at a club and I sort of danced at her, you know, <laughs> like you do, for a long time. And I think because she wanted me to stop dancing at her, she gave me her phone number, which I asked for. Uh, and I was a bit confused what, about what had happened. I had this phone number. Um, so I went home and I, 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 I couldn't sleep and I was you know, very excited about having this phone number. Uh, so I phoned her up at 9.30 the next morning. <laughs> 9.30 seems to be an unfortunately re reoccurring feature in the story. Find her up at 9.30 in the morning. She was so confused, having been woken up uh, by this phone call, that she sort of half asleep <laughs> agreed to go out with me. Um, so we had our first date, and uh, something weird had happened to me between dancing at her in a club and uh, going on this date. For the first and only, probably, time in my life, uh, two other girls, as well as Jen, were also kind of maybe interested in me. So I was like, oh my God, I have to make a decision between three different women who are all interested in me. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> what do I do? And so we have this date, and J Jen says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about this date. And I'm like, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, great, fantastic. Because I got these other two girls, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know whether to pretend to, and, or, you know, to play everybody, and we're dating and all that nonsense. or just come clean. We're fantastic, we're not going out. Brilliant, do you want to go for a drink? So we went for a drink, and I wasn't all stressy and that, because we weren't going to go out. And we went for a drink in a, uh, a, a bar that was quite far out from the university campus so it was kind of uh romantic and we just talked and i've never talked as long and hard with anybody in my life uh before or since well since as in all the time with her but not with anyone else and uh so at the end of that so we go back and uh, she does you know she still wants to think about it so i say i'll see you some other time then a few days later um i see her in the around the campus and i realize that valentine's day is coming up and that might be a quite a good seal the deal thing to do. So I uh, said, do you want to go out next Wednesday? I didn't tell her it was Valentine's Day because I figured she wouldn't know. And then uh, I'd trick her into it. So <laughs> I did. I, it was successful. And uh, I went out with her. And she, she was uh, happy to be going out with me, but annoyed that it was Valentine's Day and that I tricked her. And I, I, I wrote her, made her a card with a poem in. I was so intense. <laughs> she used to say, stop looking at me. Just stop looking at me for a bit. Um, anyway, uh, so I gave her this card. I fell down the stairs as I was giving it to her. And uh, she sort of reads it. And it was probably a pretty bad poem, but she stayed with me anyway, even though she's a much better poet than I am. Uh, and Because I'm not a poet. Uh, and <laughs> so, so, yeah, we, 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 that day we, we ended up walking for a, a long time and, we kissed on this a swing, and it was very sweet and nice. And ten years later, she still is with me. So this story doesn't really have an end. Uh, hopefully, it never will. And, and it goes. When you tell somebody your truth, you have to also look at that truth. Examine it. See how it might look to somebody else. Challenge your own preconceptions about the truth. Because when you put it in front of other people, then you're suddenly laying yourself open to them saying, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I think you could have done this. I think you could have done that. That's not what happened. I was there. Nothing like that. What the hell are you talking about? I'll be reevaluating 
where my strengths and probably more importantly where my my weaknesses and my flaws have come from that's my personal journey one of the things I hope to personally get out of this and I'm going to get better I'm going to be getting to know myself better through you and hopefully by listening to that process and uh, hearing my my stories about my life you'll get you something know those from that too occasional stories of successful internet dating when two people got together through the internet and it worked well that was the way my last band was formed i stuck a ad up a post up on gumtree and everybody that became part of that band pretty much came through through that post at the height of the band there were 70 members in it so i met a lot of people and it worked for a lot of them for at least some of the time sometimes i think everybody that was in that band apples for everyone um pretty much left with something it was an interesting experience for about four and a half years maybe five and my original idea was to form a big band uh, I described it as a, a band big enough to start its own movement or, or something like that um, and, and I guess that original description was like a, an internet filter it, it, it managed to bring a lot of like-minded people together and uh, it put off people who didn't didn't feel that way now, despite the band having separated, I am still good friends with, with lots of them, uh, and many of them I still collaborate with now or will be doing so in the future. Despite the band ending, our music has been left like a, a time capsule or uh, a statue um, with our highlights echoing through the digital space after we've gone. Um, you can find it, actually, at myspace. Apple's It lied to you as we were kneeling in the clouds. The line we formed was always, always blue. It's the one thing I remember of us. That is not true. The time capture element of the internet is nice. Or at least I like it. I like the way that it leaves the past of you out there like the rings of a tree. It can of course mean that all your mistakes are left there forever. You can never really delete anything that you put on the internet. It remains there whatever you do. I recently had a, a debate with someone from a, a music project that I used to, used to be involved in about whether we should remove our back catalogues, sort of open coffin I guess. Uh, he might have thought of it. From the, from the internet. To me, it, it's, it's a, a, a kind of perfect memory without me having to remember it, of what we did. And it's something that, that people can find and they might like and they might enjoy. But, but to him, it's like having something that's dead up there on the internet. Because he feels when a project's finished, it should be forgotten. He has a, a scorched earth policy to his past, uh, to our past when we work together. He, he feels that the new music is what he should be judged on and he cares only about what's going on at that moment. And I can see where he's coming from. It's not how I, it's not how I feel. I don't see the point in making art if you don't expose it to the audience. It's the finished product I like. That's what the internet offers to the unsigned musician. A chance to display their finished product. A way to find an audience. A way to make their art real and not just an idea. If I write a screenplay, well there's no point in me doing that because it won't get produced. But if I make a podcast, it's there, it's done. I've done it, no one stopped me from doing it. It'll find an audience or it won't. The problem is that it's much, much harder to find an audience online. All the hype makes it sound easy. Like the way that the American dream is sold 
anyone can make it in cyberspace. The reality is, it's really hard to find an audience. If you're successful, and really, personally, I'm yet to find the right formula, but if you're successful, it will involve a lot of time and a lot of effort, and possibly also some money. If you don't have a, a, a name like Radiohead, or a label backing you, or, or, or whatever you need, whatever it is, then it's very, very hard to reach a wider audience than your friends. The current band I'm setting up is aimed to be a podcast and a YouTube band uh, to only uh, perform online uh, and to release all of our stuff for free um, and try and find an audience and then see what we can do to make some money out of it and uh, do something about it. The one thing that doing it that way offers me for definite is a chance not to get ripped off and to not have my friends be ripped off by promoters by have playing expensive London nights where you the audiences who are your friends because they're the only people who know you who are coming to see you have to pay a lot of money to get in and see you and a load of bands that are nothing like you and maybe are pretty rubbish you don't get paid if you don't play well then you have massive guilt because your friends have all paid money to get in. And if you do play well, then you sort of think, well, great, but nobody else is really listening. They're all here to see their mates' bands, and then they're going out in between for cigarettes. So the internet means I can connect with people who like me, maybe just my friends, hopefully more people than that. Hopefully it all build and build and build. But I'm not ripping them off. I'm not being ripped off. I can present it the way that I want. Getting an audience, finding fans, going viral, that will still involve a hell of a lot of work and a hell of a lot of luck. And that's what musicians should definitely know. The internet is not the easy option, it's just a different option. When I was 11, I invented something amazing. I discovered something that nobody else in the whole world had ever known. I discovered it late at night, lying in bed. I found that my body could do this amazing, amazing thing. And I couldn't wait. Uh, till the next day to, t to tell everybody else about it. So I, I, I gathered around a, a group of young men uh, the same age as me and I said to them, I've discovered this amazing thing. I call it simulated sex. And I described what I'd been doing, which was rubbing myself until I achieved orgasm. And uh, they said, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's wanking. Everyone knows about that. And I realized I hadn't invented simulated sex. I just discovered masturbation I mean I, I still love the fact I loved that day that night when I thought I had discovered something amazing that I was the first person in the world who had done this amazing amazing thing and it just seemed so simple so perfect you want to feel good you want to feel something amazing then you just do this thing and it's amazing and it was amazing then it was a completely unambiguous gratifying act as I've got older, masturbation has become a less pure experience for me. It's been complicated by, you know, guilts and worries and stuff like that that have no place being in the life of someone who had no kind of Catholic or strong religious upbringing at all. But they, they, they got in there somewhere through society. And also, I guess, because it's, you know, 
masturbation is great, but then you go to the next level and you have sex and then masturbation is not as good. I mean, as a teenager, I was an incredibly obsessive masturbator for some time when I was older. Sort of, I guess, 14, 15. You know, I would do it till, till it hurt. And I think most most men do that, probably. I mean, you get to this kind of, wow, I can do it, let's just see how many times I can do it. But, I mean, it is true. Um talking to other men and other people i i do do think i probably have a have quite a high libido for better or for worse but then it didn't have all of these complicated adult concepts that i've just been talking about then it was just this pure moment of eureka it was proper proper amazing a story that I wrote in Lancaster about seven years ago. Stone bins and jealousy. John Cole was a bastard. As an adult, I may have to admit that he was simply a human being created from society and circumstance with his own hopes and fears and insecurities. I might think somewhere deep inside of him was a lost little boy. But I didn't know him as an adult. I knew him at a time in my life when the school I went to was the whole universe and I wasn't even aware that there was anyone in the world who suffered the agonies that I did. I knew him as this first year boy at a secondary school. And that is a time of life that really makes clear to you who the bastards are and who they are not. And he was a fucking bastard. The thing I remember about him is he had the body of a toned 18-year-old stud at the age of 11. He would strut around the boys' changing room absolutely unashamed of his body. We would all be holding towels around ourselves and he would be striding about with his massive knob thrust out, nestled as it was by a massive, wiry expanse of pubic hair. We were hairless or... Bum fluffy, and he was a man. I dreamt of the day that my knob might resemble his, even just a little bit. Of course, he didn't just swagger about in there. He punched you as hard as fuck if you looked at the dick that he practically shoved in your face. His reason for punching you was that if you looked at his knob, you must be gay. And the reason that you didn't punch him back was that he was the hardest cunt in the year. He was already a petty criminal and he knew some properly hard cunts. Not school hard, adult hard. That and getting in a fight naked in the showers is not the way to disprove gayness. I was annoyed that the fact that I wasn't homophobic didn't stop me from getting punched. I was also annoyed that I got punched a lot. Having no glasses on in the showers, I was often squinting. And to John, squinting was a sign of homosexuality. And this annoyed me all the more because I was one of the only people there who couldn't see his fucking knob because I didn't have my glasses on. The lasting Polaroid quality images I do have of it all come from me sneaking glances when I had my glasses on for fuck's sake. And he never noticed me then. I remember seeing him fight someone once and it was fucking brutal. It was proper nasty shit like nothing I had ever done or had ever been done to me. Most fights I have been involved with had worked up to one nasty event and then stopped around there. Like when I was battered in the tennis courts and one of the three Kierans, the hardest one, held me up off the ground and punched me in the stomach and chucked me on the floor. Even since watching John Cole fight, I've only ever seen violence like that first-hand once, watching another school fight between two properly hard men slash boys. I'd seen violence like it on TV whenever I'd accidentally caught a boxing match, but never seen it live. It was fucking fascinating, really scary and powerful. He was a nasty bastard, but he had blonde hair. I'd never met a nasty bastard with blonde hair till him. He was a real pretty boy, but bad. He-Man's face, Brad Pitt's body, Mike Tyson's fist and Hannibal Lecter's soul. 
He was destined to be expelled and he fulfilled that destiny with style and panache. He was the kid you would never want to have to teach. He was the kid you'd wish you'd never birthed when you finally realised he was the nasty bastard. And before that, he would be the apple of your eye. The nice girls all fancied him. This surprised me, as I thought that though the nice girls would obviously never fancy me, they would at least fancy people who were good-looking versions of me. You know, sensitive, interesting people who cared about them for who they were or whatever. This was the kind of boy-man they acted like they wanted. But then that cunt would come into the room and they would hang on his every word. If he had beaten the shit out of someone, they would say how bad it was. But their voices wouldn't sound disgusted. They were excited, yearning almost. They yearned for him to want them. And I yearned to have his knob. He brought out the yearning in everyone. We all probably secretly yearned for him to hit us just so we could get some kind of contact with his powerful and commanding existence. But then one day I realised he wasn't a powerful god of mayhem. He was just as likely to be clumsy as me. He just hid it well. Anybody could fall flat on their face at any time. Someone had ripped up one of the stone rubbish bins right out of the concrete. More than that, they'd managed to drag or lift the bin across to the pond and hurl it in. It lay there, side on, forming an island of rock in the weeds. It was close enough to the edge to be close, but far enough away to not be easily reachable. Because of this, it took weeks for the school to remove it. It must have been more than one person that did the ripping and the moving, but at the time and ever since, I've had an overwhelming image of John Cole ripping the thing up with one arm, casually, smoking a cigarette at the same time, and then lazily throwing it higher and faster than giant Scotsman toss cabers, and then smiling in satisfaction as it crashed into the pond. There was horseplay and bragging. I'm lapping it up, standing beside the water's edge, looking out at the bin, the small stones embedded into it, making it look like some kind of tortoise. It was a solid thing. If you didn't know better, you'd think it had always been there. It was close enough to jump onto. I looked around at all the girls, sensing in their faces the admiration they would give me if I was to casually jump over onto the bin and then jump back. A crowd had gathered by now, and I realised I'd said something about how it would be easy to jump it. I'd sealed my bloody fate now. I couldn't talk it up and then not follow through. I'd go from the centre of attention to the centre of derision. I braced myself for the leap, looked at one of the girls, gave her a cocky wink, and then launched myself out across the water. I felt the air wrap itself around my body, whistling across the hairs on my arms. The world slowed down and I saw myself from the outside in extreme slow motion. I flew over the sunlight reflecting surface of the pool. I felt a sudden hard surface smack into my feet. The muscles in my legs seemed to explode into themselves. I grasped the air with my hands, frantically trying to balance. I swayed dangerously and then I was standing on the bin in the middle of the pond. Everyone had stopped what they were doing and were looking at me. I was king of the school. I had proved that none of this shit meant anything. Homework, grades, GCSEs, algebra, it was meaningless. All there was was power, was grace, was bravery. Those were the things in life that meant anything. I turned around and looked back towards the crowd of people on the bank. I bowed and laughed and whooped. I jumped back onto dry land again, this time effortlessly, as if it was nothing more than taking a step. I jumped back onto the bin again. I was fucking it. I was fucking it. I jumped up and down on the bin. Everyone was clapping and cheering. Then the bin started to roll under my feet. It was spinning round and I was like a hamster on a wheel or a middle-aged woman on a running machine. 
I was fighting to keep my dignity, to keep myself from looking like the dick I suddenly felt I was. I I could have left it with one jump. I I could have left them wanting more. Why didn't I leave them wanting more? A kind of mix between a crunch and a splash happens. My legs are surrounded by cold, lapping water. My feet are tangled in weeds. I look up and the crowd are all laughing. I think of all the other times I have fallen in the water, how there's always a bloody crowd around to laugh at me, how the water's always cold, never warm. A teacher has pushed their way to the front and is yelling at me, going on and on about how typical this is of me, which was exactly what I was thinking. I don't cry or look embarrassed, even though that's how I feel. Instead, I crease my lips into a cocky grin and stare at them all, getting the crowd on my side. This wasn't a mistake, but a joke. They aren't laughing at me, they're laughing with me. They are mine. They're eating seed from the palms of my hands. Cole! Get out of the water now! Stop grandstanding and get up here! The teacher yells. I blink and realise... I am sitting on the cold concrete of the steps, watching John Cole slush his way out of the water. His grin is cocky as fuck, and he still manages to swagger, even when he's up to his knees in fucking pond water. I thought it was all happening to me, but it wasn't. I was the nobody still. Just another invisible kid with glasses and no pubes. It's funny that I remember it all as if I was John, rather than that I was watching John. I'm not sure that when I was watching it, I did imagine I was him. I think I just watched him do it. I think that the whole realisation that I wasn't the one it happened to is just an implanted memory created by my own confused psyche. What I do know for definite is that the reaction everyone gave the cunt when he fell in the pond was 100% better than the one I got when I fell in. He got respect and the rest of the day off. I just got the rest of the day off. The two incidents happened within a month of each other. I was the one who fell in first. He was just the sequel. But it turned out that I was Terminator 1 and he was Terminator 2. And hardly any fucker understands that you couldn't have had T2 without the Terminator. They just remember that T1 was pretty cheesy. I was just the background, the filler. John Cole was the fucking star. One thing I want to touch on really is the nature of being a writer. I don't want to be all... uh, pretentious about this and suggest that you know I'm somehow different or special or even that I'm a good writer I'm not saying that but being a writer it does mean looking at the world as material my life and my experiences and the people I meet are inevitably always possible material for things that I might write or make, because I don't just write things, I make things like podcasts or I write songs. And this is something I kind of feel very ambivalent about, have a lot of guilt about, I worry about a lot. Um, Certainly I am a very absorbent person. Uh, Whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm obsessed with, whatever I'm interested in comes out in my writing. Um, and my life experiences all come out in my writing. And I think this makes this makes me worried about the kind of person I am to be friends with or to know. Uh, I don't want people to be worried that I'm going to misuse their lives in my work. And I know that sometimes my friends have worried this. I hope that it is something that I have always done correctly, that it's a line that I have always 
trodden well, but I, I can't guarantee that that is the case. I always will remember an occasion where I went to visit a friend who was having a very uh, difficult experience and I went to visit her because I love her and wanted to, to be of help to her and when we were when I was waiting in the queue uh, for a bank for my friend, a different friend, her husband, to uh, to I think he was do, he was getting some money out or something, and he was in a queue. And it was a long queue, and I I didn't want to wait, and I I went to the side of the bank, and I I knelt down against the window, and I had my notepad, <laughs> and uh, I was scribbling down a lot of writing in that notepad. Um, what I was writing was actually about micropayments, the internet system uh, for payment, uh, where you click, you pay per page in small amounts. Uh, and that was for a blog that I wrote at the time. But he saw me writing in a notepad. And I knew when he came up to me that he thought I was using his wife's experiences that I was only there to get a story and I made it clear I said I'm writing about micro payments and he said good and I'm probably being paranoid he probably didn't mean it in that way he was under a lot of pressure he wasn't worrying about me he wasn't thinking about me he was thinking about other things but I always will remember that moment, a feeling of utter shame. And I guess if I'm any kind of a writer, I'm a, a method writer. I, When I was younger, I had a big thing about life experience. And I was always trying to get as many experiences as possible without hurting anyone. That was the proviso. And uh, I would do anything because it would be an interesting experience. I mean, within reason. Obviously, I wouldn't end up taking heroin or something because you can't come back from that. But... Uh, I was interested in getting as many experiences as uh, possible. And as I've got older, there's still that element to what I do, although it's much more ambiguous and complicated to see life that way. There are, there are more responsibilities, there are more things that get in the way of, of, of embracing every experience and seeing where it will take me. And I'm a method writer, yeah, uh, but I don't want to just be a writer. I'm also a person and I, I don't want to hurt my friends. I don't want to use them. Uh, generally, I fictionalise everything. A friend of mine, Zoe, who's in one of the podcasts, once said to me, there was a, a piece of writing that I wrote where um, I used some details about her life or some elements of her in a couple of different characters. And she said when she read it, it didn't upset her. She knew that I wasn't just using her. I was mixing her with some other people and I was creating something new. And I hope that that's how people will always feel when they will see things that are connected to their them. And that's okay for fiction. You can draw that line with fiction. You can make composite characters. I think it's always important to make composite characters so that you're never locking somebody's life down into something that makes it smaller than what it is and at the same time with my really personal experiences things that have happened to me my childhood those I do think are fair game and I will use them and do use them but when it comes to autobiography for some of the pieces that are going to be in this episode it's a more complicated area to be going into I think it's always very important to empathise with people and to try and see why they might behave the way they are and also to make it very clear that it's it's only your opinion, it's only your interpretation. You are... I don't know what happened in my childhood. I only know how I felt at the time and how I feel looking back. What I think happened. It's not truth, it's my truth. When I was a teenager, I wrote a play called Blood of the Lamb about my family 
life at the time. Uh, and that was, it, that was autobiography, passing as fiction. And I gave it to all of the family members who were involved in my childhood to read, and they read it. And that had some kind of therapeutic response. Uh, my stepdad apologised to me for the strange world that we'd inhabited together, for the way he'd behaved at very stressful times in his life and in everybody around his, around us, his lives. He apologised to me and I accepted that apology and I, I think it was a very big thing for him to do, a very uh, kind and uh, good thing for him to do. And my mum and me also had a, a, a very frank and complicated discussion around that time about that play. Uh, she felt that I betrayed her as the bad person and I didn't feel that I had. Maybe she was right. Maybe that's how she came across. But if she did come across in that way, I, that was a failure in me as a writer. And I was only young. So, I mean, you know, fair enough. But uh, it wasn't my intention. All these years since that time when my friend thought I was writing about his wife, I've always felt incredibly sensitive and worried and guilty about that. And that moment comes back again and again and lots of moments like that come back to me again and again I always obsess about small things that I've said or that people have said to me that make me feel like I did something morally wrong I don't know why I do this for example I'm always obsessing over this time when I went back to visit my drama teacher who changed my life in many ways. I'd love to get him on the show actually if he's listening. Um, and I went back to visit him a few years after I finished school because me and my friend would go back to, to school after, after we were in university and uh, to visit, to visit our, our teacher. He was telling me something about theatre and I told him something else about theatre. I don't remember. I jokingly said, now the pupil has become the master. And he said something like, you know, that's how it should be. But I wish I could destroy that sentence. The arrogance of it, the inaccuracy of it, the brashness of it. I, I just don't know why I said that. And if I could go back and remove that, if I could get a, a power tool and destroy it like one of those electronic sander, sanders if I could just erase that sentence from existence I really dearly would and I mean I do obsess I'm sure everybody does about these these little things that were said or I said there was a time a friend of mine said to me that I wasn't as uh, interesting and exciting and vibrant as I had been when we were younger and I mean that made me cry for quite a few days when I thought about it and it still makes me feel bad now and he, he didn't even mean anything by it I mean that's the thing about these sentences I, I've, I've come to discover that over the years things I've said or things that people have said to me they've only really stuck with me they've only really lodged there like a like a like a, a thing that I keep coming back to uh, over and over again um, it's only happened for me I'm the one that's taken that, that little thing and engraved it into, into my, my psyche or whatever. for the other people uh, it wasn't really it wasn't really very much all the presents had been put round the tree and uh, my family were gathered in the front room and I had the job of uh, giving out all the presents and I was, I was excited and I was really happy. Um, I was about 10 and I was living in Coventry. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Coventry. I, I hope for your sakes that you haven't. Um, Coventry is a, a very grey and depressing place in the Midlands. Um, and I always think about that, um, that Betjeman poem about happy bombs falling on slough. I always think that, that should, should that, for me, that, that applies to Coventry. But then... 
ironically, a lot of uh, bombs that weren't very friendly uh, uh, did land on Coventry, and uh, that's probably why it's such a state. Um, it's a kind of mixture of, uh, of empty, empty newness and depressing industrial oldness. And the only nice things in Coventry are uh, the old cathedral and the new cathedral that are by each other. Um, the old cathedral was destroyed um, by bombs and the new cathedral was built as a result of this. And it's sort of, you've got hope and you've got despair, you've got old, you've got new, and, and, and that's, that's what that's all about. And that's what this story is all about, these, these, these two different cathedrals um, in my life, I guess. Um, so my life in Coventry was very much like that. It was... It was um, Two strands, good and bad, um, and uh, happy and, and, and not happy. Um, and <laughs> that's um, when, I, when, I was, when I was in the week, I would be um, with my mum, and it was very unhappy. And at, at the weekends, I would be um, in my dad's house in this, in this very depressing tower block in, in an industrial wasteland. Um, but inside the top of that, that tower block was this, this, this little flat where um, I would have the best weekends uh, of my life. Um, so I'm giving out the presents, getting back to that. And this is at my mum's house. Um, and I'm giving out the presents. And, and, and I'm full of energy. I'm full of in, enthusiasm. And as you can see, I'm still quite full of energy and enthusiasm. Um, when I was a kid, I ran everywhere and I talked all the time, um, but I still uh, move quite fast and I, I still talk all the time, um, but I do it in a different way now, uh, partly because of this story. Um, and then it was kind of innocent. Now it's kind of neurotic. Um, <laughs> Now, my mum has a saying about me that she, she still occasionally uh, brings out, um, that um, I was uh, a lovely child till I was five, and after that, it was all downhill. <laughs> um, and she says the same th similar thing about my brother, but she says he was, he was a terrible child till he was five, and then he was brilliant after that. He's my older brother, and I love him very much. Uh, it's not his fault. Um, and, <laughs> and so I... <laughs> There I am, and I'm, I'm, I'm jollying up the day, because it wasn't nice in that house at the time. And it was Christmas Day, it was supposed to be happy, the family's all there. So I'm, I'm trying to make everything smooth and, 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 and nice. And, and, and that house at that time, every night there's rows in the, in the room next to my sister and to me. Uh, my stepdad and my mum rowing, arguing, shouting all the time. Um, and the nights were just spent holding my little sister who was just crying every night and it, trying to make her feel better and make her feel safe um but then that's the in the daytime uh, my days were spent um arguing with my little sister <laughs> who uh would use her stepdad my her dad my stepdad as a kind of weapon to hit me um because if she told him that i wasn't playing with her he would hit me um and um so my stepdad uh he's a a guy, he's a working class guy originally from, from Northern Ireland. And his dad hit him, seriously hit him. And his teachers whacked him with um, a cane. And he turned out very nice. He's actually the, the nicest member of his family. Um, and uh, so, that, but that's what he'd lived through. That's the, the background he'd had. Um, and my mum, she had sort of, been many things. She had a very hard childhood, um, but uh, she was kind of a sort of hippie and a sort of feminist. Um, but both of them, when they got to Coventry, something snapped and something just happened. In that city that used to be uh, a war zone, they kind of had their own little war zone where they argued a lot and, uh, and he started hitting me. Um, now, I didn't tell anyone that he hit me. I didn't even tell my mum. I'm sure if I had, uh, she probably would have done something about it. I didn't tell my dad either. And I didn't tell my dad because his house was this oasis. Um, 
and I, I, that's where I went at weekends. That was all that was nice. I didn't want to kind of take this old cathedral and whack it into the new cathedral. And and, and at his house uh, on those weekends during this terrible time in my life, he, he read me the Lord of the Rings um, and the Iliad and, 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 and he, he gave me cooked breakfasts and, and toad in the hole and, 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 and all sorts of lovely memories. Um, but this isn't a lovely memory. I'm, I'm handing out the presents and um, I've got to the end of the presents. Everybody's got their presents now and uh, there's no more presents. Everyone's starting to open their presents. I'm not. I'm, and and uh, I see this, see this present down, the, down behind the, the Christmas tree, stuck down, down behind it. And I, I pick it up and I look at it and it says, it says Dave. So uh, I open it up and it's a Mars bar. Now, not, I don't really like Mars bars. Um, not that happy about this present, but I thank my little sister who it's apparently from. And I say thanks very much. And I, and I and I'm try to be as grateful as possible because I want the day to be as happy as possible. And uh, the next thing, my mum is screaming at me. She's shouting and shouting. She's saying I'm greedy. She's saying I'm spoilt. She's saying that I always do this. I'm just, there's something just nasty about me. And, and, and then she says, and I'm afraid this is the case. It's cliche, but it's what she said. She told me that I had ruined Christmas. And then she stormed out of the room, uh, crying, ran up the stairs, and I can hear her her feet running up those stairs and I'm crying and I don't really know what I've done and I look down at this wrapper in my hand and it says dad and mine is Dave and it says dad so I made a mistake uh, that ruined Christmas and then my, my stepdad took me by the arm um, and he pushed me back into the Christmas tree, um, he said, you've upset your mother, and, and then he hit me. Postscript. Uh, in the nerves that are created by standing in a room, in a spotlight, trying to fit one of your worst memories into seven entertaining, engaging minutes, it's really easy to miss bits. Uh, the bit I missed was about my mother. And it went like this. During this time, my mum was commuting every workday from Coventry to Birmingham and then back from Birmingham to Coventry. She'd leave really early in the morning and she'd get home pretty late in the evening. And uh, when she got home, she'd have to do the cooking and uh, she, at the weekends and in the evening, she did all the housework. Uh, my stepdad didn't do any of it. He just read the newspaper. Somehow they'd re reverted to these, these strange straight gender roles i don't know why um and this exhaustion that my mum must have felt um getting home so late having no sleep doing so much and the stress that she was going through at work and at home was i'm sure a very big part of what caused this situation to happen what made this story happen of why she behaved the way she did. Basically, she had reasons, just like my stepdad did. It doesn't excuse them, but it does explain them. One last thing I'd like to add uh, that I don't think comes across, because I've having listened to it a few times now, is that my little sister was only four years old when this story happened. She, she might have even been younger than that. So you mustn't think, and she mustn't think, that I hold the way that she could manipulate her dad against her. I don't. She was a child. It wasn't her fault. This podcast is coming out on the back of a few other things that I've been doing before. A podcast project called Four Days in a Room with two of my oldest friends, friends I've known since I was at secondary school. We went to an undisclosed location in Manchester and we recorded ourselves for four days and that show is still going out now uh, it's a weekly show I think that the outcome of this experiment has been quite varied their series is very different each episode is very different from from the last not all of them are necessarily successful having 
edit being the person editing that experiment down into into bite-sized episodic chunks and trying to make those chunks interesting to listeners and interesting to myself i have had to listen to myself talk a lot talk over my friends say stupid things say things that i don't even agree with in hindsight and i had to listen to myself interacting with my two oldest friends which meant that we acted a lot more like we probably did when we were 15. That's not the only truth about me. And I guess I wanted an opportunity to show different versions of myself through this project, to show how I interact differently with different people. Maybe through this project, I'll end up less socially awkward. People think because I talk a lot, that I'm not socially awkward. I would say that's not true. Yes, I always can find something to talk about, but I don't always talk about it in the right way to the right people. I'm, I always doubt what I say. I'm never, never sure how, what the other people, what other people think of me. Um, I'm constantly, constantly paranoid about people taking offense to this thing that I said or that thing that I said. So I hope that the process of this this show will teach me to be less socially awkward. I've I've done quite a few of the interviews already and I certainly am finding that in everyday conversation I'm much more aware of when I'm speaking and when I'm not speaking and of giving other people the space. So hopefully that 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 sort of thing will continue. Um the other thing I hope to end up with is a greater knowledge of uh of the world around me of the different people that I'm speaking to of their ideas of their thoughts exploring areas that I'm not necessarily interested in initially finding ways to be interested in them finding things about all of the different people I'll be speaking to that I can relate to and that other people can relate to and 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 conversation I mean it makes sense that I'm working in podcasts now um, although it's very different from writing and very different from what I've done in the past conversation is is kind of where I live it's where I where I'm at what I what I do all the time and it's a craft that I'm always doing but I've never taken the time to perfect I've developed as a writer over the years I've developed as a musician but I haven't necessarily until now hopefully developed as a conversationalist I think that this uh, project is kind of has a lot of different strands that will be running through it. There'll be interesting things about family as I interview different members of my family. There'll be interesting things about friendship. There'll be interesting things about the different subjects that people talk about. There'll be different interesting things about the way that people talk, about the way that conversations function. Um, and yeah, it'll be an oral history of a load of people in 2011, what they thought at this moment in time about things that in 10 years' time we can look back on and we can see, did, did we agree with ourselves? Any, do we agree with ourselves anymore? What do we think? And other people can look back on and say, look, that's what they thought at that time. Some of the people I'll be inter interviewing will be uh, are quite old and this might be uh, some of the final recordings that may be there. Uh, of their lives and that is also a very valuable form of uh, social and oral history um, hopefully it's going to be about interesting people and I would say that all people are interesting and one of my jobs should be finding a way in to each person unlocking what is interesting about them you get to judge if I do that or not but certainly, I want to take you with me on that journey. So come on, let's go commit GBA on someone right now. Recorded sound is like that, you know, um, the Beatles are just as relevant now as they no, were. No, you're a dude, Yeah, that's right, yes, we went for a walk. I don't know, yeah. such a I know there are plenty of times when therapy does help. I think there's a certain value in talking to your friends. Friends, I always think. Friends and family. But then I suddenly got malaria.
That's it. That's it. They know what's And if the space doesn't have a high ceiling, what are too the high a ceiling, it wasn't just sometimes um, you lose the a thing you had to do for yourself. You had to somehow knit these things together. Yeah, like if she meets my grandmother, for example. My yeah. grandmother would understand what she's saying, obviously, but... There's translation but, but there's, but, but there's a bit They're of all kind positive of element <laughs> things that the government are trying to do to promote growth, that might to make happen, things but better. But then you can't date the stones, you don't date the ones without the crosses were before the ones with the crosses all at the same time or like you can't date them so you can't put them <laughs> you break I, my house with, down when we were the Banoir I nearly shot one of the Banoir the guy <laughs> Jesus with a fishing arrow so now it's compounded by the fact that not only do I like you but I'm incapable of speaking to you and should you attempt to speak to me I might literally run out of the room or you know I'll make some immediate excuse to get away from you because I'm so physically uncomfortable